Today, my guest is Professor Aida Hayra. I'll keep my introduction uh, short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Aida as a person. Professor Hayra is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Ayro's research is in sustainable development with a focus on social aspects. Uh, she studies poverty, quality education, gender equality, decent work, inequality, and migration. Her work has been published in AMJ, Academy of Management Discoveries, Journal of World Business, Academy of Management Learning and Education, and Human Resource Management Journal. She received the AMR Outstanding Reviewer Award, AOM's Robert Sheffer Award, and the British Academy of Management Award. Uh, Ida has served on the editorial review boards of AMR, JIPS, Human Resource Management, and Journal of World Business. She is also the co-founder of Migration, Business, and Society Global Network Initiative. Thank you, Ida, for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. First question, uh, the beginnings. Uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? So I'm originally from Sarajevo, Bosnia. And when I was very young, I, I really loved animals. And back in Sarajevo, there were many street dogs. So my favorite hobby when I was around seven, eight was taking care of street dogs, like feeding them. And, and back then, you know, I thought I one day when I'm big, I will join an organization like Green, Greenpeace. My favorite movie was uh, Save Free Willy. Oh, yeah. You remember this one? Yeah. Wheel? yeah, I love that movie. So everybody fought and I also fought once, um, you know, I have finished my education and I'm big, I will join an organization like Greenpeace and I will be saving uh, the planet and the animals on planet. Yeah, look it's where you ended up. <laughs> yeah. So what was the journey like uh, from that point on? Uh, how did you decide to get into academia? And, oh. Uh, so it's, um, you know, my first I had this love for animals. And I remember one of my uh, parents' friends said, it's a good thing because people who love animals love also people. You know, if you mm. like animals, you're going to be more keen to take care of people. And my mother uh, was a lawyer. So, and, uh, you know, upbringing, I became also interested in all the aspects of human rights and so on uh, back then. Uh, but uh, maybe, you know, joining academia, let me see how to explain it, because it's maybe I would have to explain also my life journey. Sure. So what took me here, and it's also one of the questions that you regularly ask, is about sure. your international experience and first time exposure to international. Yes. Uh, so I was born in Sarajevo. I was a baby when we moved to Mexico. So I spent there five years of my life in Mexico City. Yeah, so my first uh, language was actually Spanish. <laughs> uh, we returned back to Sarajevo when I was six. And this was the first time I discovered maybe the not positive aspects of going back because I spoke Spanish and um, I was supposed to go to school. But because I couldn't speak fluently Bosnian, they told me she can't go to school. She has to go back to kindergarten. So the only one time in my life that I failed was in kindergarten <laughs> because I, I didn't speak the, the language. And, and 92, you know, when the war started in Sarajevo. So we, uh, luckily we escaped on time. So, but then we moved again to Belgrade. From Belgrade, we moved to Montenegro. From Montenegro, we moved back to Mexico. 
And in Mexico, we stayed for four months. And my father got um, an offer to come to Vienna, Austria. So we came from Mexico to Vienna. And back one of his old friends told him, it's a stupid decision you have made. You're coming from the country. You know how to do business. You know the language to country. You don't know the language and you not, don't know how to do business. Uh, but then we, we stayed there for six months. Luckily, his contract was extended and so on. So this, you know, the, the love for the international, this is how I, I became interested in international and became interested in integration. I became interested in multiculturalism and so on. From since then, you know, I lived then in, in Vienna. I studied also in the United States. I worked in the UK, then back to Vienna, now back to the UK. Uh, but um, when I was finishing my degree, and the only reason why I studied business is because my psychology teacher told me when somebody has multiple interests and talents and doesn't know what to do, then the best thing to do is to study business. Because with a business education, you can, <laughs> you can work in an art museum, you know, you can work in healthcare management. And um, this is actually step-by-step step what brought me into academia when I finished my business education here at Vienna University. Um, and I already recognized that I really, during my master thesis, liked the work of writing. And I also liked the work of presenting. And in 2004, I decided to go for a PhD. And they were 2004, summer 2004, only three opening positions that I was interested in and a scholarship for PhD students. And all three started with international. The first one was international management. I was not selected. The second one was international human resource management. I was not selected. I, and then the last one was international business. And I thought, this is it. If I don't get this one, I have to find an alternative for what I want to do. And then international business actually, my application was accepted and I did my PhD back in 2004 to 2007 at Vienna University. Interesting. But th this is the story, it was a little bit long. Sorry for that. <laughs> this was good, this was very interesting. So uh, after Vienna, then uh, what did you do after Vienna, after the PhD? Um, after the PhD in 2007, um, I met my now husband. <laughs> Back then he was my partner, but he, he worked for G Capital and he was based everywhere because he was doing internal auditing. And he asked me back then if we would like to move together, where would I like to be based? And I told him he didn't like, he didn't want to go to Austria at this stage because he was still working for G Capital. And I told him maybe best would be London because it's it's US is too far away, I would say. Mm -hmm. And London, I speak the language and there are many opportunities. So 2007, then I applied and then I moved um, because I see. Of him. <laughs> I, see. So I, I was back then, uh, what you call self-initiated expatriate. <laughs> <laughs> self-initiated expatriate. Yeah. So uh, uh, that is a nice term. Um, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you, uh, about your hobbies, yeah. what you like. Yeah. There are, I think, many things I don't put on my CV. Maybe one was, you know, when I was young here, I was, uh, I was acting in Viennese theaters, 
I don't say I don't know if I was good, and this is not the point why I'm saying it, but it it's you know when I discovered that I really like teaching and being talking to people, and I did it actually mainly back then because I had I had fear of public speaking, so and there was this opportunity to do the three to to learn how to act. So I said, okay, I will just try it, and 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 then I really liked it. But the difference between being on the stage and acting and teaching is that when you're acting, there's usually a director and I had three different people who were directing me and telling me how to perform on stage. Hmm. And it always depends on the individual. Some are more less fear, but some really want you to, to do it exactly the way they, they would like it, to see it on the stage. And with teaching, you are directing your play and you are also on stage. So you hmm. combine kind of both. I'm responsible for the content and I'm responsible for how I would like to communicate it to the students. And at the same time, I'm the one who is entertaining. So uh, this is not on my CV, but, but uh, you know, it was also one thing that led me into academia. Interesting. Uh, if you stop doing uh, what you're doing today, uh, what's the second best career path for you? What's the second best alternative? Okay, I think I would know immediately what to do. So now that, you know, I'm doing work on migration, I also work with, with, with organizations outside of academia. So mm -hmm. one of them is NOMA, this is the Global Knowledge Partnership on Migration and Development that has been established by the World Bank. And the secretariat is also based at the World Bank's headquarters in Washington, D.C. So if for some reason I would... Uh, you know, leave academia, I think I would uh, really be interested in working for an uh, organization like Nomad. So, so currently, are you associated with them? Are you doing work with them or for, for them uh, on the side? Or uh, is it like a, uh, a curiosity for you? No, no, I'm aff affiliated with them. So, but... Uh, uh, I have known Dilip uh, Rathar, who is the CEO of Nomad, and mm. he's also chief economist at the World Bank now for, mm. I think, it's like two years. And th this year, first time <laughs> in November, I, I was invited to their chairs meeting at the headquarters in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And I really like the dynamics. It's, it's, it's you're, you're invited to a meeting and you're sitting with people who really have this desire to make positive change. Mm -hmm. And these are people from different organizations. There were also academics, but from different disciplines. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was there to present actually how uh, to combine what they are doing with uh, international business and the role of the private sector okay. in the context of migration. Okay. So this okay. was. Uh... Uh, regrets in life. Any regrets? Have you got any regrets in life? I mean, <laughs> I have many regrets, Ilgas. I mean, maybe they are not major regrets that they have put my life upside down, not like that. But I, for example, don't like reading my papers that I wrote in the past because every time I looked at them, I think I could have done this better. So I never read my paper. I mean, sometimes I have to because I have to remind myself to correctly cite myself. Luckily, I work with Milda Zelenskaite on many papers, and she knows my work, so she then reminds me if we have to cite something that, or if we can sign something. 
I, I mean, and, and there are many other regrets. One thing I'm still regretting, I would, and uh, we would like actually together to write the book, and we haven't had time to start this book project. So, okay, there are many regrets. I uh, the lessons learned from the biggest mistake or failure, except kindergarten uh, failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll tell you one so like uh, the, the the way I was raised was my parents raised me thinking that everybody has very good intentions. There are no bad and good pe people. There are only good people. And um, I, I discovered at the age of thirty eight, which was very late actually, that maybe this is not always the case. You know? <laughs> and which was a very important lesson when it comes also to working with people and deciding who are the people you have on your projects. I don't know if you know the, the book of Adam Grant, uh, Takers and Givers or Giving and Taking. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he distinguishes between different type of team players. So I, I, I wished I had known more about uh, um, Takers, uh, if I remember correctly, one of the uh, previous CEOs of Pepsi, I think it was Pepsi, uh, the best advice they ever received was uh, you listen to every advice and then decide, uh, assume that the person is giving the advice in good faith, always. Yeah. So yeah. it is pretty much the same uh, uh, thing. And I rarely feel that way. Uh, I feel, okay, uh, I'm trained as an economist. So there's always some game theory. Uh, there's some sort of cheating going on uh, in, in the back of my mind always. So uh, I'm thinking, uh, is this person giving the advice in good faith all the time? And probably not. And that is my uh, reaction. But uh, to these questions about failure and to question about regret, uh, there are two types of answers. One is uh, everyone says like, oh, I don't look into the past, uh, everything is in the future. And there are all the, also the, the, these new type of people who say like, well, there's like just a lot to learn from these regrets and past mistakes. Uh, I'm really curious, uh, how does all these things uh, influence your research? Uh, your current research on uh, immigrants and mi migration, uh, inequality, equality. Um, mm -hmm. uh, how does it have an impact on your current thinking? Uh, what was exactly the, the 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 last example that I mentioned, or in general regret? In general, in general, about your research, what drives your research? Okay, to be honest, everything I experienced in the past is a big driver of my research. Hmm. Um, the back 92 experience of, uh, you know, forced displacement mm -hmm. has deeply impacted me personally. It's something I cannot talk about. I very often get emotional, which then I think it's, you know, traumas remain. So you don't want to be reminded of it. And back then it was probably the... <laughs> you know, the, the biggest tragedy that happened to us at that moment as a family and also to my country back then. But today, I think it's my biggest source of resilience. It's my biggest source of inspiration. Mm -hmm. It's my biggest source of purpose, a part of my children. So everything that maybe was taken away at the moment when I experienced it, 
without ever thinking that this could become something that uh, provide gives me also hope and strength mm -hmm. you know has featured into my research is featuring in my work and i mean it's i will give you an example when the syrian um, syrian refugees when i watched back then uh interviews with them and they couldn't speak well German. It was done in Germany. They couldn't communicate exactly what was going on with them. And I was watching this and without them saying what is going on, as uh, if you have experienced this, you can read between the lines and you feel what they want to say. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and the other issue, what I said, the last thing about things I wish I had known about people has also it's helping me immensely now because now I can uh, read between the lines certain tendencies. And when it comes to forming your teams, and especially the work that I'm doing, mm -hmm. identifying the right people to work with, and also knowing the people you don't want to work with. And okay. because you have a very purpose driven agenda, and it's be bigger than um, you know me and I have a clear vision of what I would like to achieve in the next 20 to 30 years I cannot afford to have additional barriers along the way because it's anyway ambitious enough you know so okay. I think everything that happened to me in the past has contributed to where I am now beautiful this was insightful thank you uh, let's talk about research, more about your current research mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the state of the field in IB. Uh, in the next five to 10 years, if you could make a prediction about uh, the, the, the state of the field going forward, uh, what are the big questions to be asked and what are the gaps, uh, things that are omitted uh, from the current research? Uh, things, um, omitted variables, omitted contexts, omitted uh, topics. Uh, what are some of the things that we should be thinking more of? Mm -hmm. So you sent me these questions in advance and I was thinking there, there, there are many things that came uh, to my mind. So, and I will just list them and not go into detail. So okay. one is uh, global health and international business. And we have seen it during whole COVID, how global health can impact the international business activities of firms. The second one is obviously what I'm doing, migration international business, because we started, you know, um, paying more attention to this phenomenon in the last decades or so. What I'm also very interested in, you know, more articles are popping up on Industry 4.0 and implications for international business. What I also find fascinating is now the great resignation and how the labor markets are changing. And the fact that we are away from global war for talent and what we are witnessing today is the global race of labor, for labor and how this is impacting the activities of multinational firms. And this has to do a lot with replacement migration, but I will not go into detail now here. Mm -hmm. What I am also interested in and I'm not doing would be the role of the private sector in peace, ensuring peace. Um, and from the research on migration, what keeps me you know, thinking and questioning. We have done amazing work on, for example, cross-cultural management, cross-cultural distance and so on. But in the last um, six decades, migration patterns have changed. Like what? And migration patterns in the sense that, you know, the number of um, 
net immigration countries has gone down and the number of net emigration countries, countries that migrants go from, uh, has gone up. And I'm asking myself often how this is impacting, you know, how this is potentially changing the culture in the net immigration countries. Hmm. Like, uh, you know, you, you can see in the big cities, uh, London's population, more than 40% are first-generation immigrants. Uh, in Vienna, 50% are first-generation, second-generation immigrants. And how, how these things are impacting, you know, the culture in the whole society but also the culture in the countries of uh, immigrants that they left behind. And they are in the migration field. They are concepts and they are theories that are challenging the way we think and maybe see cross-cultural distance and cross-cultural management. So th these are so many issues, I think, uh, that uh, I would be interested to read about in future international business publications. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, why do you, uh, let me ask uh, this question differently. Why do you think uh, this change is happening this way now? Uh, do you have a prediction about, um, or let me ask, ask very straightforward. Uh, in political science, when we study uh, international economics and political science, uh, just before the war, a major war, there's always going to be immigration. There's always going to be an increased fluctuation of humans, human bodies across uh, borders. Uh, uh, economy always tanks, which is doing exactly right now. Uh, and people are moving in hordes, and which is exactly doing what's now. So the war is coming for, for sure. It's the political science prediction. There's always a war. So they can never go wrong in the prediction. But... Uh, how does it um, how does it impact the international business uh, research? Because you said role of firms in peace. Uh, how does that thing uh, impact us? How does it uh, infiltrate to, to research? Uh, you know, you, you talk now about uh, refugees and migration in general. So uh, the refugee number has increased now, but you know the refugee number is normally it's a small, a small, small percentage of the worldwide uh, population of refugees. Mm -hmm. What is currently, I think, more impacting, and you know, uh, refugee increases depend on conflict, but what is more impacting international business, I think, it's replacement migration. You know, many what we call the emerging economies have become middle income economies, mm -hmm. and uh, people from these middle-income economies are moving to high-income economies. And as a result, these middle-income economies don't have enough labor. And this is this applies to Mexico now. I know of multinational companies that cannot meet their production targets because they don't have enough workers in their factories. This applies to Malaysia. This applies to Hungary, Central Eastern Europe, and so on. And this is impacting international business activities. And I also work with this with my colleague Nildes and Skyte. it's also going to have an impact on all the reshoring and reassuring efforts of multinational enterprises, mm -hmm. you know, because it's, it's really an issue of scarcity of labor. Uh, and just an example, maybe. And I visited uh, last year in December factories of Flex. Flex is the first largest electronics manufacturing company. 
Okay. And we went to Hungary. We visited their factories there. The factories in Hungary are responsible for 80% of the production of the Nestle coffee machines. Hmm. So normally, these factories were established in Hungary because you had enough uh, labor supply in Hungary. But today, these factories, 60% of the people working in these factories, it's the 10 largest employer in Hungary, the flex factories, are from Hungary. And the remaining 40% from Ukraine, which is fine, and from the Philippines. Hmm. You know, you see how all these dynamics are changing. And I think this is replacement migration, but I would like still to emphasize, and I always emphasize, that the percentage of migrants remains very small. It mm -hmm. has been fluctuating between 27 and 3.6% of the worldwide population when we talk about migration, you know, but okay. uh, still we are, we are feeling the consequences. Now. Thank you. Very interesting points. Thank you. Uh, Aida, uh, going through the PhD program, who was the most influential person, uh, your advisor, your mentor, uh, your, uh, uh, what was the best advice you received when you were going through the program? So, um, so my advisor and who really opened the doors for me to academia was Gerhard Fink. He was a professor of international business at Vienna University of Economics and Business. He retired. The person who was very key in my development was Christina Gibson. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She is, uh, I don't know where I would be if not uh, for her mentoring. I worked on my first big paper that was based on my PhD dissertation with her. It was my first time I was writing a scientific paper. And it was in 2006 at the Academy of Management meeting, I presented in a doctoral consortium my idea, my proposal. And I asked her, what do you think if I managed to do this work, could I publish it? You know, from Europe, in Europe, you didn't get the training back then how to publish in American top outlets. And she told me back then, you can try MJ or ASQ. In 2010, then uh, I contacted her. Um, and I had worked back then. Marcus Pudelko, whom you probably also know, uh, mm -hmm. was helping me try to, you know, turn what I had into publication. But then actually we shared it with Christina Gibson. And then she stepped in and she said, okay, I can see I can help you with that. And so she taught me really how to write. She told me how to, you know, define the theoretical contribution. Uh, together, we worked on the data analysis. Uh, we went through all the revise and resubmits back then in AMG. I think it was four or five. And I learned <laughs> from her how to write, you know, responses to reviewers. And then another key was that she invited me to be editorial review board of Academy of Management Review. It was back then, and the Jay Barney was the editor-in-chief. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is where I learned uh, also how to write editorial <laughs> letters. And thanks. So she was very development. She was very uh, key in mentoring, I would say. But then there were people who helped me along the way. Maybe I will mention Michael Milakam and also from Vienna University and Chris Tallis from my current institution. So. Okay, now looking at the uh, current PhD students uh, and young scholars, what are some of the common mistakes that you see across the board 
that these uh, young colleagues make? Okay, the first one is, uh, and you know, now I'm in the role that I'm mentoring myself. And um, I, when I have a PhD student I work with, I first ask them, what's your personal statement? What is that you would like to achieve in the long term? So, you know, it's the question, why? <laughs> why mm -hmm. are you in this profession? And what would you like to be your legacy? Uh, and what is a mistake very often, and I think you see it and we all see, is that we have been trained to publish and publish and publish. So students are publishing for the sake of publishing without really asking themselves what implications could this have or positive impact on society. There is, maybe I will summarize it in one, there is um, Rosabeth Cantor from Harvard University. I don't know if you know her, but she published a book and it's called Thinking, um, so no, I think it's Stepping Outside the Building, but she says there are three different stages in a career. The first one is when you enter, you need to gain the credentials. This is you have your PhD and maybe you have one good publication so that people take you seriously. The second one is you take a seat at the table you are editorial review board member, you are maybe, you know, helping with uh, running the IB and so on. And then she said the third one and most important one is stepping outside of, of the building. So it's, it's how to really have an impact and make a positive change. And I think this is what PhD students maybe should have in mind or the way we should be training them to go through these different stages because very often for some it ends with getting the credentials for some it ends with taking a seat at the table and there are some who are then really stepping outside the building so this is a summary beautiful thank I you i can say much more but i know for the sake of time i should be keeping my answers uh, we're almost out of time so uh, last question is there a question i should have asked you about heaven You know, you ask me, um, uh, I have one question for you, but um, one thing that I, when you asked me about the best advice that I had received, um, in 2007, when I met first time Chris Pitalis at a conference, he told me, um, so he, he invited me for a coffee and we took and he told me, look, <laughs> I'm 52 and have published 52 papers. You don't want to do that. <laughs> you want to have a life. <laughs> and then he told me about what life is. Yeah, and he gave me some, 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 you know, some advice. And uh, 2008, I briefly met him at the Strategic Management Society, and then you know I didn't go to conferences because um, um, yeah, I was pregnant and. Uh, I, have, I had small babies to take care of. And in 2015, um, I received an email. It was at Brunel University Business School. I worked back then. And it was an email announcement that Chris Pitalis is uh, coming, stepping in as the new head of school. And in my meeting first at uh, Brunel University with him, I first had to ask him, do you remember who I am? And then he, he remembered. And I told him, so, you know, I got married, I have two kids, and I have not published 52 papers. <laughs> and then he looked at me and he just told me, excellent. 
<laughs> and what the advice was is to define success on your own terms. And I think this applies also to many PhD students and also many junior faculty members, because also what success is today might not be success tomorrow. When I talk to junior faculty members who are doing work, that's really interesting. And I can see it's difficult to publish it because it's so novel. But I see the agency and I don't want to discourage them. Sometimes I say, don't worry. Maybe the losers of today, if the rules change, become the winners of tomorrow. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. with everything that's going on, and I know you talk to Anit Sui, I believe in this responsible research and business and management initiative and what they are trying to achieve. Yep. So maybe just um, follow what's going on and advise to more junior faculty members. Thank you. This was very good. Very well done. Uh, thank you, Aida. Uh, I learned a lot. I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, we're going to do one little short addition. One question, what are you most proud of? So, uh, first of all, I'm proud of the work that I'm doing with my core team, with Mildes Insight, Paul Baldessari, who is uh, at Flex. He's the Executive Vice President of Worldwide Operations there. I'm proud of the work that we are doing on migration and what we have achieved so far. And also together, we have also set up the Migration Business and Society Network. And second thing I'm very proud of is that I can be part of the Center for International Business at University of Leeds. So I'm very impressed by their past achievements. I very firmly believe in what we are doing now and what we are trying to accomplish. And I'm very much looking forward to our future joint efforts. Beautiful. Thank you. Now so, we are done. Sorry for that. I, I needed to, this is for my teams. You know? Perfect. I have two. One. <laughs> one is on migration, one is more on international business. Yeah. <laughs>